The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. In the early 1730s, there was a black young servant in the court of the king of Denmark. His name was Anton, and he was brought to Hernet in Germany by Count Zizendorf in order that he would plead for volunteers for missions. He asked for those to volunteer to go to his native St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands. And he hoped in particular that they would share the gospel with his enslaved sister Anna. And in response, two men in particular came forward. Leonard Dober and, and David Nitschman left Germany for St. Thomas. But as they were preparing to leave, they experienced, like many missionaries do, all sorts of adversity, not from outside sources, but from fellow Christians, fellow church members and family who were just reminding them how dangerous this journey would be, almost a certain death sentence. Part of the opposition was aimed at Dober's heart in particular to reach not just this servant's sister, but the slave's as a whole, as a group in the Virgin Islands. He was willing to do whatever it took in order to do that. He said, um, on the island, there still are souls who cannot believe because they have not heard. Maybe the statement that got everyone's attention uh, more than any other was when he described his willingness to sell himself into slavery, that he might get on a boat and go and reach the slaves. What better way to reach them with the gospel than to be side by side with them, even if it meant putting ourselves free men born to aristocratic families under that same brutal authority. They were free, but they were willing to subject themselves to men that others might come to know and love Jesus Christ. So as we turn to Peter's letter to dispersed Christians who are enduring persecution and alienation because of their gospel allegiance, we see the roots of that kind of heart, that Moravian missionary movement heart. But much more here. Peter has been doing kind of identity work, hasn't he, with the Christians that he's been speaking to, telling them really who they are in Christ for for some time, connecting them, for example, to the old covenant people Israel, Showing that they're not some new invention, but they are, they are too God's people. In fact, showing they have surpassed even those privileges that Israel enjoyed under Christ's new covenant work. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And Peter, Peter had just mentioned even last week and reminded them that they are sojourners and exiles not permanent residents of Rome or any other country on earth. And I just want you to put yourself in the original audience's shoes and know that kind of begs a question. If all that's true, the question is, well, then what is our responsibility to the, to the earthly government now? Like this earthly government, to kings and emperors who hate us, princes and governors if we're a part of this greater kingdom, this mighty kingdom serving a greater king, why should we submit ourselves to these earthly man-made institutions, these presidents, these, these laws? You know, I think of that kind of 
pressure in Peter's mind as that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He was ready to defend him, probably expecting Jesus to call down fire from heaven, but he didn't. But Peter's sword was ready. It was out. It was cutting flesh. But then Peter sees Jesus lay his life down, submit himself to the governing authorities, the ones that would try him and sentence him and execute him. What impact do you think that had on the author of this letter? What example does Jesus mean to leave for us? The central theme of this entire section, beginning here in verse 13 and goes all the way down to chapter 3, verse 7, is Christian submission. Christian submission. Here we're going to think particularly about that as citizens with some farther reaching implications. Next week, we'll see Peter address servants, slaves, and masters. And the following week, the family, wives and husbands. That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks, thinking about Christian submission. And, and here's, the, here's the main point of today's passage in, in a sentence, if you want to write it down. It's a little bit wordy, but I try to be careful with the words. So, so listen, believers are to live in appropriate submission to human authority structures under God as a means of commending the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believers are to live in appropriate submission to human authority structures under God as a means of commending the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to use three terms to summarize Peter's thinking as we unpack this text. And those are listed there in your notes. They, they all start with M because I'm a pastor. Okay, but, but there they are. Three things that summarize. Number one, the mandate. So we'll think about the actual call here. The call to be in subjection to these human authorities. The mandate. Number two, the motivation. Uh, why should we be in subjection to these human authorities? The reason and even the results. And then finally, number three, the manner. So what would that submission look like? What would that submission, that subjection look like? And then that'll be a topic that we continue in the next couple of weeks. What an important and timely message for us. And let me just encourage you not to only read this as an American or someone who's sitting in America right now, whether your citizenship is here or someone else. Put yourself with our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Pakistan and North Korea and China who also are reading and seeking to obey this passage, although the implications will be different. May the Lord give us grace. Let's look first at the mandate. Number one, the mandate. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That word mandate just means an official order or commission to do something. Or it can refer to the authority that you, carry, that you carry out an action with. So we have been given here a mandate to be in subjection to proper human authorities. That word institution in verse 13 is a bit of a stretch uh, from the Greek. A better word would be creatures. 
creature. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature. However, I don't think what Peter is saying is that we should be subject to, in the same way to every single person on earth. But by using that word creature, he may be taking kind of a subtle swipe at the emperor cult in Rome, which, which would have taught that, that the emperor was in fact divine. He should be not only obeyed, but worshipped. No, Peter says, be in subjection, yes, but don't worship. He is merely a creature like you and me. Institution is, I think, a helpful translation because the context here is Peter referring to authority structures like rulers and governments, not calling us to just submit to some, every person who tells us to do something on the side of the street. So in the introduction, I use the word appropriate uh, to describe our submission, and I get that from these verses where we're to submit both to the emperor who is seen as supreme in the land and to governors as sent by him, as representatives of his authority. Later in verse 17, we read that we should honor everyone and then again, honor the emperor. So I don't think that Peter means that we would honor the emperor in the same way that we would honor a friend next door necessarily or a governor even sent by him. But there there are appropriate levels, appropriate levels of honor given to these levels of authority under God that these people have been given. On the other hand, it does sort of set a precedent for a, a broader view of subjection to authority. It's not just the top person. Okay, we, we, we see what the president says, and that's all. But it's to all those in authority over us. To be saying that believers should have an inclination to obey and submit to those in authority. After all, in the governor's case, notice he's sent by the emperor to do something good. Verse 14, to punish those who do evil and, and to praise those who do good. I think that's a pretty good summary of the purpose of government. Punish those who do evil, restrain it, and then honor and praise good deeds. Encourage people to be good citizens. Now, nowhere does Peter say in these verses that governments will fulfill these roles perfectly all of the time. We could point to several governments, our own and others, that fall short. But even in the most oppressive governments, there is a sense in which there is still a restraining of evil and an encouraging encouragement of good, maybe sometimes incredibly faint. Just look at the history of Israel. Look at Jesus' interaction with the government authorities that we see in the New Testament. And look at the early church, even, even here. So when Peter says, submit to the emperor, um, he's likely calling these, these Christians to submit to Nero. Could possibly be Claudius, but likely even Nero at the beginning of his reign. But either way, whoever it is, they're not very warm toward Christianity. It would be Nero who would eventually violently persecute Christians, including Peter himself. But he isn't calling us to be subject to these authorities because of the inherent goodness and perfection of these institutions. But notice he says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. It's out of our obedience to the Lord, our reverence to the Lord, our desire to follow the Lord that we do this. The emperor may be the supreme ruler of the land at the moment, but the S is lowercase. 
His rule and power are in fact limited. So I'll just confess this to you. After reading a statement like this, I'm really tempted to preach a different sermon. The the nature of this command from Peter just kind of makes me a little bit nervous. (coughs) Obey, submit to the governing authorities. I'm just a little bit more comfortable with texts that encourage us to, to do some civil disobedience. I could read you some, some fun places where, where Peter is called to stop preaching and he goes on to preach. And that's a great encouragement for us in evangelism. But that's not what this text is about. Maybe you're like that and commands like this kind of raise exceptions and exemptions before they encourage you to obedience. I think we could and should say that Peter is not encouraging blind obedience to authority, even the highest authority. I think that's partly what that phrase, the Lord's sake, is doing. It's tempering our obedience, tempering our subjection. It's done as unto the Lord. So it wouldn't make sense to be submitting in a way that would be disobeying Christ. But here, Peter is saying Generally, in most situations, we should be those who are submitting ourselves to these authority structures, to government and other lower levels of authority, as unto God. These structures are meant for our good and for the good of society. Paul says it this way in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Friend, brother, sister, I wonder, is there any authority in your life that you're throwing off right now? Is there any authority that you're finding yourself to be a little bit allergic to? How is your commitment to following Jesus showing up in your submission to authority? Certainly this applies to to government situations and the way that we we think and we talk and we tweet about our our president, whoever that may be. If anyone were going to start a campaign of hashtag not my emperor, it would be here in Peter, right? Uh, Nero's not my emperor, but he doesn't do that, does he? He calls us to be subject for the Lord's sake to our president, whoever that may be, to Congress, to the Supreme Court, to our governor, to our mayor, to those who serve in the military, to policemen to, to, and, and women, and, and even our teachers in the classroom, all of those at appropriate levels of submission. So police and lifeguards, for example, have different levels of authority. We understand that. They don't give lifeguards tasers to zap kids when they run at the pool. We understand what it means to have different levels of authority already, don't we? But we are called to, as Christians, put ourselves in subjection to these authorities in our life. Children, are you doing that with your parents? Are you submitting yourselves, not just saying, well, on paper it's true, they're in charge, but submitting yourselves to your parents' authority as something that's good in your life? Like your bedtime could be good for you. What kind of reviews, if you're a student, are you leaving online for your professors? I'm not saying you have to lie, but are you saying things that would line up with the tone of what Peter is saying here? 
Are you praying for those in government offices, in places of authority? Or are you only criticizing and complaining about them? Are you kind of living the life, being a kind of of citizen that, that maybe even the secular government would say, hey, look at that person. What they're doing in in our city or in our community. Notice that's, maybe that's something we don't typically see governments doing, but Peter says here, that's what they're there to do. Restrain evil and honor those who are doing good. Be subject under God to appropriate authority. That is part of what it looks like in your discipleship. That's part of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So just ask yourself, am I following Jesus in this way? Is this part of my kind of submission to Jesus being brought under his authority? And we'll see that more kind of in our, our next section. Let's, so let's, that's the mandate. That's the call. Let's think about the motivation for this submission. Number two, the motivation for this submission. We're to be subject to human creations and institutions like this, but why? Verse 15 tells us, For this is the will of God, that by doing this, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, Do this because it's the will of God. And and I think that phrase, uh, for this is the will of God, refers not just to what comes after it, but also to what comes before it. So it's acting kind of retrospectively here. In other words, you could read it like this. Submit, verse 13, because, verse 15, this is the will of God, with the result that you will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So, so why do we do this? Why do we put ourselves in subjection to these human authorities? Because it's the will of God. Paul told Titus, Titus 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Friends, that needs to be up on Little League fences, doesn't it? That needs to be up before you sign up for Twitter and Facebook. That needs, to be, that needs to be part of the way that we think about being a member of a local church, a body that will live lives like that. It's God's will that we do this. And then the, the, the second part of why we ought to do this is because of the results of doing this. The result of doing God's will that's also a motivation for us. Because when we do this, when we, when we live this way, it, notice, silences the ignorance of foolish people. It silences ignorance. So apparently this ignorance is vocal ignorance. And it's rooted in foolishness. He means here that, when, that Christians were and still are today going to be maligned and accused of of all kinds of things, at least you would say, under the microscope. Christians are going to be under the microscope by the world and will be accused of being against the rulers of the land because all this talk about being another nation and serving another king. They'll be accused of drunkenness because, well, every week you take the Lord's Supper. They will be accused of not caring about the world we live in now because all you're talking about is this world to come. They'll be accused of hypocrisy and practicing empty religion. 
of being a single-issue voter while you ignore the marginalized and, and holding up marriage and holy living while the same divorce rate for, for Christians is, is the same as the culture. We look at pornography as much as the culture or whatever the statistics may say. And so, so Peter says, living like this and overflowing with good to others will silence this talk. It'll silence it. It won't stand Instead, people will see the truth. People will see Jesus. Think about Jesus' interaction with Pilate. Just step back and think about that interaction for a moment, just in terms of who's talking to who. Uh, The king of the universe in the flesh, uh, the one who has all authority in heaven on earth, talking with a person that he made and knew before the foundation of the world, and yet now he has positioned himself underneath his authority for the moment over him. Just just wonder at that reality. And then listen to the words that Jesus says. Jesus answered him, John 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Think about that phrase, bearing witness to the truth. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's will and that included the submission to authorities. Even pagan ones like Rome. Friends, there's our example. And through it, We are saved. And the ignorance of the foolish were silenced. Nobody's talking about Jesus being a zealot after that interaction. All he wanted to do was take over the world through military might. No, that's not what they're saying. Friends, this is Jesus's world. He could have claimed it and taken it at any moment. And yet he had something else, something greater in view, namely saving a people from hell, from their sins. silencing ignorance. And listen, this ignorance that exists isn't just a lack of knowledge. Like, hey, I didn't know the answer to that test question. It was, it was worded kind of funny. No, this is an intentional ignorance rooted, Peter even says, in the foolishness of men's hearts. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Their ignorance is due to their hardness of heart. This is a culpable ignorance. You won't be able to stand before God on judgment day and say, you know, I actually didn't know you existed. I never knew that you were real. Now, foolishness in the Bible has nothing to do with intelligence. It's a moral category of person. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're, you might not call yourself a Christian or you're not sure, I wonder what your opinion is of the Christians that you've known in your life. You might not tell us, but I wonder if you've found some Christians in your life who've made a mess of things or churches that have blown it. Or maybe even you have a personal experience of being hurt in a church. 
Maybe you've been reading some headlines lately of Christian leaders who have left the faith. I'm really sorry if that's been your experience. Really sorry. But I do want to caution you from comparing yourself with other Christians that you see and kind of finding comfort there or judging what you've seen some Christians do and then sort of letting the result of that judgment be that's what Jesus is like. No Christian in this room, you need to know, would say that they are sinless. What distinguishes us from the rest of the world is that our faith and trust are in Jesus Christ. We are sinners just like everyone else. We are just repentant sinners because we've found the love of Jesus Christ. Notice how we're going to see this whole passage is centered around Jesus. Just skip down for a minute to verse 22. He committed, this is speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, that's why we're here to celebrate that message. We are all fools because of our sin against God. We have all despised him and his teaching and and we prove it by the way we've broken his laws, his commands. And we deserve the justice that a holy God would bring to us for that cosmic treason. And our only hope is to trust the one who was sinless, who paid the debt that we owed, who obeyed perfectly and took God's wrath on himself and died and rose the third day from the grave. Jesus paid for our sins And if you would turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ, you too would be forgiven and made righteous in God's sight. Friend, repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. You're not promised tomorrow. Don't put this off. All this talk of subjection and and putting yourself under authority only makes sense for those that follow the one who subjected himself to death that he might save us. If you're a member of our church, if you're a Christian here this morning, you have experienced this grace. And Peter calls us to witness it now to others, to to be a witness to it to others by living these submissive lives that are overflowing with good and good deeds and good character to the world around us. You should read books on apologetics. You should study those arguments and pray that God would give you an answer for the tough questions others are going to pose you about your faith. But I think the strongest apologetic that you can offer is what Peter lays out right here, submission to authority and doing good to those around us with joy, with contentment. Unfortunately, we only often think about the negative examples of of teaching like this. What happens when it goes bad? I mean, Jesus had someone in his own, in his own group, Luke 6.15 says, that was a zealot. Think about the, what the city of Corinth thought about that church after one of its members was caught in an incestuous relationship. Think about the comments we hear from others as, as prominent people walk away or fall from the faith. Brother or sister, your godly life 
your good work in the world, your submission to authority commends the gospel in a very powerful way. It sort of sets the stage for you to tell others about Jesus as they see your life as one that they would want to pattern their own lives after. Doing good, living in subjection to authorities silences foolish accusations. May it be so for us. Finally, let's consider this last summary point, the manner in which we're to carry out this life of submission. So the mandate we see, we're called to this. The motivation we see, because it's God's will, the results will be glory to God and now the manner. And ironically, the manner in which we subject ourselves to the authority of others is rooted in our freedom. So verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I just hope you see the, 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 the freedom in this, right? We're, we're, we're not to submit to kings and rulers and presidents and governments and teachers out of a place of weakness or inferiority, or because we're forced to do so, we are totally and utterly free in Christ. The only authority that humans have is because they have been given it by our Father. The question is, what will we do with the freedom that we have been given? Will we start kind of a movement toward anarchy? Is that the right thing? Will we, will we rather just erase all boundaries and let everyone live and just doing whatever they want? Will we go on a drunken sexual binge because there's a grace for us? Now, Paul teaches this principle, doesn't he, to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Friends, if your freedom leads you to sin, we're doing it wrong. It should lead us into greater service. Notice that connection in Galatians 5 and here in 1 Peter. We have great freedom through the gospel that we might have greater service. True freedom is found in being true slaves to God. I know the word is servant there, but slave I think is even closer. Christian freedom is not an escape from service, but a radical changing of our master, who we're serving. Calvin called it free servitude or or serving freedom. This is where the the power in the submission lies. It's a willing and joyful submission from people who are free. Maybe you remember the incident that happened with Peter and Jesus. I just love to go back and think through these gospel stories as Peter's writing. Someone came up to Peter and wanting to collect the tax. It's in Matthew 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? How would you answer that? And when he said, from others, which I think seems to be the right answer, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. 
However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Friends, I think that's a great just summary of what, what Peter is saying right here. Sons and daughters of the king, free. You don't owe taxes. Don't tweet that. <laughs> Hold on. But so as not to offend and go to jail, so as to honor the gospel, pay. Pay, though, from a place of freedom, a place of strength, because you're a son and daughter of the king, because God has provided. He, he may provide through fish, however he provides. We pay the tax to God's glory. Don't use your royal status as a son or daughter as a cover-up for evil, Peter says. Pay your taxes, submit to the emperor, lay down your privileges for the sake of the gospel. He continues to fill in what that looks like in verse 17. Look there. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's a great way to conclude. (laughs) Honor everyone. Every person on the planet deserves appropriate honor because every person on the planet is made in the image of God. Of God. That is a fundamental Christian worldview truth. How would we treat someone with honor who was in a, in a ter- who has committed a terrible crime, who's a murderer or a terrorist or a rapist? Well, we wouldn't treat them like animals. We would want them to have a fair trial. We want them to have proper justice. We would pray for them for their families. Even though they may have distorted and prostituted God's image terribly, it has not been lost, whether a convicted criminal in the courtroom or an innocent, unborn human in the womb. Honor everyone. Is there anyone in your life, brother or sister, that you're struggling to honor right now? Maybe it's a group of people Maybe it's a religious group. Maybe it's an ethnic group. Maybe it's a political group. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a church member. And maybe you just begin to notice that your disagreeing with people has kind of turned out and resulted in you attacking people. Not their arguments, but them, them as people. Going against them those made in the image of God. And God, the Holy Spirit, is calling us to repent of dishonoring anyone who is made in his image. Just a universal call, isn't it? For us to apply by God's strength, by his direction. And then a step up from that, step up from honoring is love. <laughs> the special call to love the brotherhood. Not that Peter wouldn't call us to love those who are not outside of the church. He clearly teaches that even in this letter. But here, this specific call to love the church, give special affection and commitment to believers, to the church, global and local. Friend, do you love the church? Do you love other Christians? If someone walked into your life for a week that didn't know you and just watched you live life, would that be their conclusion? That this person loves 
the brotherhood? Are you a member of a church? Have you committed yourself to a group of people to hold them accountable, to be held accountable, to to lock arms with them in love? You are not meant to follow Jesus on your own. You need brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in Christ. Your love for Jesus is often expressed in the way in which you love the brotherhood, the church. The third commandment here he gives uh, should really be at the top of the list, probably if we're going to list in terms of importance, fear God. This has already come up in Peter's letter multiple times and and, and, and so he's saying, yes, we should honor everyone. Yes, we should, we should love the brothers. We should honor the emperor, which actually that's the fourth command you see there in verse 17. But notice he doesn't say, fear the emperor. You shouldn't fear the emperor. You shouldn't fear these authorities over you. We fear no one but God himself. That fear, that, that divine reverence is reserved for God alone. Brethren, we're not called to live our lives in in fear or in this great desire for the approval of others, but only of God. We're not to fear what others can do to us, but only to fear God. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who, who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So Peter's not calling us to be slaves to men. He doesn't say we should be lowly before others because we're lowly before God. No, it's just the opposite. We're exalted as God's treasured possession. We are his servants, his slaves alone. And it's out of that reality that we can willingly subject ourselves to human authorities. God is the supreme ruler of the universe, not the emperor. Fear is reserved for him alone. Friends, this is the manner in which we were to live out this, this freedom in subjection to authorities for the Lord's sake. And we'll flesh this out more in the coming weeks. I think just a, a shorthand way of remembering this is we're to live like Jesus. One author puts it this way, every Christian needs to learn the secret of freedom. Freedom is bondage to the Lord and humility toward people. Bondage to the Lord and humility toward toward people. And I don't think Peter ever forgot that Jesus Christ washed his feet. As Jesus girded himself with a a towel, we must all gird ourselves with humility in order to serve one another. Friends, that's the heart behind those, those missionaries who are going to the Virgin Islands. They're willing to forgo their their freedom, their precious status in society that slaves might be made free, not merely from their earthly masters, but from the power and the penalty of sin. And they would be given a new master who would say to them, Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Being totally submitted to Jesus, I think is just another way of saying you are totally free. What are we using our freedom for? We're sons and daughters of the king. We're we're called to, to follow him in these appropriate levels of submission to others for the good of others and for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. 
honor the emperor. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us remember our status on earth. Exiles, sojourners. And be fueled by our status in your eyes. Precious, chosen, treasured, priesthood, sons and daughters. Lord, we pray the way in which we love one another, the way in which we serve one another, the way in which we live our lives outside of these relationships would commend the gospel that we preach. Lord, keep us and guard guard us, we pray, from bringing that testimony into question. Oh Lord, guard us. We pray Christ would be exalted, that, there, that we would, too would be witnesses to the truth by the way in which we live. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.